Tuesday, no tax. Tuesday, no tax. Picking up on the theme yet? Visit any March or Nash location and you can really find out what I'm talking about. No tax. Tuesday, no tax. Tuesday. To learn more, visit marchandash.com. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. Attacking the podcast world. And based on the true legendary cult classic, Olas Media presents... Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Did somebody mention biscuits? Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. They'll beat you, bash you, squish you, bash you, chew you up for brunch. How bad is it? Also, I definitely don't kill a fly again. I'm not talking about that, you wiener. What about the tomatoes? Cinephiles, get ready for another saucy episode. It's the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes podcast. Our guest, Gordon Goodwin, here to spill the seeds on creating the soundtrack to our beloved tomato-tastic cult classic. Here to serve up all the stories is your host, Costa Dillon. Hi, this is Costa Dillon, your host for the Killer Tomato podcast. And today I am so pleased to have with us Gordon Goodwin one of the uh, two composers for the original Attack of the Killer Tomatoes soundtrack, a multi-Grammy, multi-Emmy award-winning artist, um, of which I cannot claim we've, we have myself any of those. I, I don't think I've even watched the Grammys. <laughs> so, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we're, uh, certainly um, uh, Gordon fits the mold just like George Clooney. We find these talents and we bring them up, and then they surpass the, everything. Steve George got our star. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's talk about that, Gordon. Well, first, let me say thanks for being here. Go ahead. Of course, I can't even. Well, there's a couple things I can't believe. I can't believe you hired me in the first place back in those days because. I, I I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, I did, I was smart enough to know the axiom of Hollywood just, just to say yes and figure <laughs> it out as you go. I knew, I knew that much, which is pretty much what I did. But the other thing is that I can't believe it's been as long as it has since we took that journey. I mean, I don't even want to think about how many years it's been, but, but no, um, it, <laughs> that, the, the brand is persevering. That's for damn Isn't sure. Amazing? Isn't that amazing? It really well, is. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, uh, you were a student at, at Cal State Northridge when we hired you, and I, I can remember visiting you in the dorm. And and but I don't know how we ever got connected with you in the first place. How did that happen? Uh, I, I was living off campus actually in a house, oh, there and I, I, I had a, I had like I think two or three roommates. And one of them was John DeBello's brother, Jerry, who was, ah. who was a clarinet player. And, right. and he brought it up at dinner and, you know, dinner for us was hamburger helper or something, you know, <laughs> for, you know, pretty, pretty, um, pretty modest and, or ramen stuff like that. You eat when you're in college. Yeah. And so we're eating our ramen or whatever. And he goes, Oh, by the way, uh, my brother wanted me to ask if you wanted to score. He's got this movie. When do you want to do the music? And I, uh, of course, the answer was, of course, we didn't know who his brother was. We didn't know anything about, about the movie. But um, 
it was uh, Paul Sunford who who co- co- composed the score, and Jerry mm-hmm. and I were the three guys that were renting the, the house. So Paul and I just d- dove in and said absolutely. And of course, Paul's also from San Diego, you know where uh, where the whole film, the production company was based. So um, we, I was a, just about to graduate from college, and man, at that point, I thought this is it, baby. Here I go. I'm not even out of school. The first film's on my doorstep. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it was, I, I learned uh, so much from the whole, it was the first time I was ever in a recording studio. I remember the engineer that we hired was looking at me like, oh, this kid is in over his head. <laughs> he was just, he, and, um, and we hired, I, I knew a lot of good musicians. I knew horn players, especially. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know a lot of good string players, and and we needed. So we had a modest string section, um, but we put them to work because because we were writing kind of Star Wars kind of stuff, kind of action music with a lot of villainistic uh, you know activity, mm-hmm. and um, it's easy. That's just easier to do when you've got forty string players. I think we might have had ten or twelve. So. Um, uh, it's. Uh, I remember them looking, the string players looking at me like, "We hate you," you know, <laughs> at, the, at the recording session because I was making. I remember they had to play a figure. Now, normally, now in my wise years, I would give them a little break. I'd go, and then have somebody else go, and then I have them pick it back up. Those are tricks you learn because you're dealing with human beings who have to right. be able to make their muscles, you know, uh, operate mm-hmm. the bow in a certain way. But I am so ignorant about that. And so, <laughs> anyway, um, so we, we just, Paul uh, and I just, um, dove in and, and figured it out. And I will remind you that this was the pre VCR days. Yes. We didn't have, we, I mean, we saw the movie one time. I don't think you were there, but I think, no, I wasn't at that screening. I yeah. saw it with John. We went to Glenn Glenn sound in yep. Hollywood and I watched the movie a single time. And then after that, John gave me these notes mm-hmm. of every scene. And basically it was like tomato advances on woman, and then the music uh, characteristic is terror, and then the next the, the next note is tomato gets closer to woman, more terror, and then tomato is almost upon woman, incredible screaming terror. So that was the and so from those notes, and he had timing. You know, he had six seconds of this, you right. know, and five and a half seconds of this. So I just had to picture it in my head from what I remembered, and I it's a miracle it even worked at all, frankly. Well, and it, I don't, it, it, it does work. So, yeah, I forgot Jerry DiBello um, was a student there. He went on to, I think, play for the Air Force Band, actually. That's right. But, no, uh, that's right. Oh, he was a yeah. good little player. So, the... Um, um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the fact you said you didn't know what you're doing because little did you know none of us knew what we were doing. <laughs> well, how did you get? How did you get the movie funded? Where'd the money come? Uh, we went to friends and relatives, um, basically. Um, uh, it's a, a movie entirely funded by friends and relatives. And, My goodness. 
over over time, uh, various people have told us that we were unusual for a low budget movie because most people, they said for low budget movies, they tend to the producers and director and so forth take take the money and whatever's left, the investors get it. And we said we, we couldn't do that because the investors were our family. We would have been killed if we did that. So we paid our investors back first. <laughs> and then we got what was left. <laughs> hey, I've got um, some breaking news. All through the month of March, the great folks at March and Ash are getting ready for 420. That's in April. But we're going to give you March specials. Just go in store or online and receive discounts off your favorite brands. Take a quick break. Visit marchandash.com right now and enjoy responsibly. So how long did it take for the money to come in? I seem to remember that it was maybe three to four years and all of a sudden a check showed up. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. You know, so many, so many, um, so much of the movie was sold off and to here and there and everywhere. Disney owned it for a while and. Um, I can't remember the other companies that own some piece of it for a while. And we have all the rights back now. Um, oh. One of the reasons we're looking at um, possibly another um, um, entry in the, in the Killer Tomato series, because we now have the uh, ability to use everything that we didn't have before, because everything uh, finally came back to us. All those pieces get lost, you know. Um, but you're right. I got to... Like five or six years ago, somebody from the Writers Guild found me somehow, I don't know how, and said, we're holding a residual check for you from European <laughs> showings, and uh, yeah, we're, we're going to send you a, a check. And it's like, wow, how about that? <laughs> I don't even belong to the Writers Guild. <laughs> so you, know, you never know. It's interesting because some of the uh, naivete that uh-huh. we had in those days that I think informed our efforts, ironically, uh, made the film um, appealing in, in its way. Like the, the, you know, the kind of special effects that you used, you know, and I don't, paper mache tomatoes or whatever it was, right. you know, all that stuff, I think added to its charm in an interesting way. In the same way how the music, when I listen to it, um, it sounds like a little bit off. Like, okay, this somebody knows what he's doing, but it's like something about it is where the strings a little bit out of tune or the yeah. recording maybe not quite as pristine as it could be or, right. you know, any of that stuff. Um, when you when you take it as in, in its totality, you know, that kind of makes it why it's, why it's appealing to people. You know? Yeah, it's like having your music done by John Williams' uh, less uh, credible uh, nephew's cousins. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I totally ripped him off. Uh, I, I was like just aping uh, Henry Mancini and John Williams, you know, in in the uh, except for the jazz stuff. And I remember there was a uh, car chase. Yeah, yeah, right. And and I and I I went with. Uh, Lalo Schifrin's kind of thing. He there was a movie, a Steve Steve McQueen movie called Bullet. Yeah, absolutely right. And it had a it had a lot of car a big car chase and and they used use kind of big band jazz in that. So I go, okay, here's a precedent. You know, I can use the big band. You know, and uh, and um, but I you know I I really wasn't I didn't really have a an identity I guess as a composer at that point other than I loved big band jazz. That was kind of where I had lived since I was maybe thirteen. Mm-hmm. 
And so that informed a lot of it, but a lot of it, a lot of the movie, it worked. Like the, the song, the song, the soldiers, the soldiers are singing and they're doing a little dance number and, you know, kind of a bluesy little thing. I mean, that, that was perfect, you know, for that sensibility. Tomato, the tomato stomp. Yeah. Tomato stomp. There it is. Yeah. Tomato stomp. Yeah. When, when I got, you know, the, um, the, when you, after you lay down the tracks, you know, that's when, um, John, mostly John and me sat down and wrote the lyrics for the songs that had lyrics. And, um, and it was it was actually pretty easy to do um, because the I, I didn't find um, I had to um, strain too much to find lyrics that would fit within the music you'd written, which was nice. But you are right about uh, uh, the um, the people often comment for such a low budget movie. The things they notice are that it looks good, and that's because we shot it on negative film, which was unusual for low budget movies at that time. And we had an orchestra, you know, as, as we put in the credits, the Four Square Symphony Orchestra, and um, uh, which was pickup musicians in L.A. But the um, uh, most, you know, most of those budget movies at the time were, you know, chaka waka choo choo chaka chaka, you know, two guys and a guitar and a drum, right? <laughs> or they were needle right. drop stuff, you know. And and the idea of having a fully orchestrated um, and composed. Um, soundtrack for a film of this budget, less than a hundred thousand um, dollars, was stunning. And and those two things, I think, even uh, as you said, people it holds up. People who don't know why it holds up um, don't realize that's one of the reasons. Is because it has interesting, you know, orchestrated music it, it, that that um, carries the scenes um, quite well. Um, I, I particularly always like the. Uh, scene at the end where they're charging up the ramp, you know, the the um, uh, uh, clarion call there, the uh, triumphant uh, sound of everybody uh, um, victorious. So that's a great piece of music, you know. Well, yeah, and that's so fascinating. Great. And I couldn't, I, uh, I couldn't have sung it to you if, if my life depended upon it. But as you talk about it, it. It started, it started to take formation in my head, and I remember feeling that same thing when you're scoring and when the music really sits and enhances um, what you see visually. It's a, it's, a, it's a precious feeling, you know, and, and uh, when, you, when you get it right. Some people get it right all the time. Some of us, you know, get it right some of the time. I remember that was a moment, right? Oh, this is lifting. The music's definitely lifting it up. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, nowadays, I can I can make that decision here in my studio. When I'm composing, I'm surrounded by computers and samplers and all that stuff. So I can do these mock-ups and I can feel uh, the emotion and I can and uh, see that it's working. Whereas I was at my parents' house on the piano that I learned how to play when I was a kindergarten kid, upright piano. And I'm, I remember writing some music at that piano. And then my friends wanted to go to uh, uh, the Pudding Stone Lake in San Dimas. Mm -hmm. I said, all right, I'll go with you guys. But I brought my score paper and I'm sitting on a beach chair and I'm orchestrating <laughs> Killer Tomatoes <laughs> at Pudding Stone Lake. Uh -huh. Because I go, well, I didn't want to give up my summer for my with my friends, you know. But, but um, um, 
the, 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 the connection that I can have with the picture now with this technology, I, I didn't have, I guess, I guess I could have rented a Moviola, you know, but I don't know if we didn't have the money to even do that. No, we did not. <laughs> we did not. So I tell you what, you know what I found? Um, and I know we're not, we're not, it's not a video podcast, but I found this stopwatch. It's a Hewer old school stopwatch. You know, uh-huh. and, it's, and I this is what I used to oh, uh, wow. to time out the cues at my piano. Uh-huh. And I remember I called a friend of mine whose name was Alf Clausen, who uh, for mm-hmm. about twenty three years did the music on the Simpsons TV show. And I said, Alf, I don't know how how do I how do I figure out how to do, do the stopwatch. He goes, All right, here's what you do. And he gave me about maybe six bullet points of how to uh-huh. use a stopwatch in order to you know hit my spots. And also uh, to figure out the uh, the metronome, the BPM, because because uh, we needed mm-hmm. to set a metronome, mar- you know. And so um, it was really old school, you know. But um, yeah, I don't think we even used a scratch track. I mean, uh, <laughs> no. that that would have been too too uh, sophisticated for us at the time. <laughs> now, now, did you do the lyrics for what was the song that that advertising guy sang? In his office. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I wrote. I wrote most of those lyrics. Uh, I, I kind of. Uh, what's it? It's like mind, stump, mind, make, mind maker or something. Yeah, like mind that. maker. The mind maker song. That's what we call it. Yeah, and it, I'm sorry. Every time I hear it, Al Sklar is the guy who's saying it. Oh, his voice is like chalk screeching on a chalkboard to me. I just, <laughs> I just was not pleased the way uh, that that came out. It's a very sing songy. Philly um, kind of uh, orchestration, but I think he he didn't he didn't just didn't come out the way I was expecting it to when I heard the final recording. I I said that's not the way I heard it in my head. It was Uh, a spirited performance. Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) It It was pretty. The film the film stops dead at that point, and you do three minutes of song, then the film starts again. It is pretty funny. Like, are we in a musical now? We are in. Or we're, 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 in, we're doing Music Man all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. I, well, you know, but some of the other songs, people love Tomato Stomp. Um, they love Puberty Love. Um, that's why people want a, a recording of it. I've been requested to provide it. I can. And. Um, the love theme from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which just that title alone is worth the price. It, yeah, the title is all you need. Well, who sang? Who was it that sang the, the lead vocal on Puberty Love? Uh, Matt Cameron, who is now uh, the drummer for Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Um, well, what a legacy he has then. Yeah, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> um, so, he, How old was he when he did that? He must have been a kid. Yeah, he was a, he was like I don't know twelve or thirteen I think or something, oh. and I saw an interview with him about um, singing Purity Love because a lot of people don't realize it's him um, because in the film he's credited as, as Fu F O O Fu Cameron, which is his nickname at the time, and uh, yeah, who would have thought? Same thing that he would go on to be uh, a famous musician, um, but the uh, sometimes you just get lucky, you know. <laughs> You and Paul became, you know, uh, 
Paul, Paul's a musician still, and, and, you know, you're a composer and musician and have your own band. And, you know, lots of people get a degree in music and that's the end of that. You know, they don't, they don't oh, have a future in music. All right. It's a, it's a, it's a real a lottery win. If you can carve out a career mm-hmm. um, and um, the, the business has um, been kind of on fragile ground for a long time, truthfully. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, you have to be versatile and you have to be able to uh, adapt. I mean, I adapted when I started writing music out of college, it was with a pencil and mm-hmm. a piano and a piece of paper. And then all of a sudden I had to retool right. and learn how to use a computer and learn how to, you know, record and be, you know, mix and edit all separate disciplines on their own. People that I, I would hire people to do all those jobs. Now all of a sudden I'm doing, I'm doing all of it. And um, I used to feel resentful about it. Like in the 90s, I was working at Warner Brothers for uh, uh, Spielberg had these um, animation shows he did. Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs and Sylvester Mm -hmm. and Tweety, all that kind of Warner Brothers style stuff. And I was one of about six composers doing those shows. It was great. You know, we had a 40 piece orchestra. We we were winning Emmys and getting money. It was so, so great. And then in, so that ended about 1999. And then in 2004, I think they called me back to see if I could do this Tom and Jerry series. And um, I was excited to, uh, to do that. But as I'm having my initial meeting, I'm realizing that all the money they spent in 1995 on 40 musicians and two music editors and four copyists and a, uh, and a recording engineer and a, all those people, all that money's gone and they're paying me $10,000 to write uh, one episode, you know, for, per episode, but mm-hmm. I have to do everything. Uh-huh. I have to write the music. I have to orchestrate it. I have to record it. I have to mix it. I have to edit it. I'm doing all of those jobs. Sweet. And I can tell you what, those 50, 60 people in 1995 earned a lot more than $10,000. Yeah, you know? of course. Right. But the, the, the uh, industry model had changed. And so here I am doing all those jobs. You know, there's no way I can be a good, as good of a recording engineer as a professional. Mm-hmm. But it turned, it, it turned out that it didn't really matter. It was oh. television. As long as I got it so it wasn't distorted. And it was, they didn't care. Yeah. So that can be disillusioning, you know, as you're and not all facets of the industry have slipped kind of in that regard. And of course, there's a lot of great television now, a bit of a you know resurgence uh, when it comes to um, comes to that, although the money hasn't exactly rebounded as much as some of us would, you know, would hope. Right. Uh, but over the arc of a career, it's really interesting to watch the ups and downs of, of how it goes. And you think about I think about people. It, that I knew in college and I thought, oh man, this guy's going to own this town. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason, just their own drive or whatever circumstances, they just went another way. Coming next month on 420, March Nash is collaborating with Chiba Hut for an exclusive 420 event on Saturday, 420. Stop by the March Nash booth and receive your scratcher store discounts and $1 pre-rolls. Look, you can see a full list of 420 events at marchandash.com. Or you can follow the Hilariously Blunt and Cannabis Enlightened podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you on 420.
20. Try sitting across from a mortgage broker and you try to get a loan. <laughs> and you're telling him, well, I'm a musician. And you can see his eyes roll right then. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't have any of your records. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, exactly. So, but, I, you know, I've, I've been one of the lucky ones for, for absolute sure. Now, when I think about Paul, I mean, he, I, when I hear his, when I heard his music for the film, I thought his cues were better than mine in a couple of regards because I thought that they were, they called a little bit less attention to themselves than mine did. Mm -hmm. So the, the cue you mentioned where they're charging, you know, up the ramp mm -hmm. at the San Diego stadium, you know, and the music's heroic. Now that's a moment where it's okay for the music to be assertive and a, mm -hmm. like a character in, in the, in the movie. But there are other scenes where the music has to just be supportive. It kind of has to be wallpaper. It has to be subtextual. Right. And, and I hadn't really learned how to do that very well yet. But Paul, he had an instinctive understanding of it. Mm. He would write these, and they were, they were interesting. They were kind of a little more dissonant, mysterious than mine. Mm. You know? and, uh, and I remember we ran out of time. There was a scene in a hotel room. And Steve is chasing yeah, Steve's the heroin around the room or something. Right. And yeah. Paul, Paul, we didn't get, didn't have time to record the cue. We just oh, ran okay. out of time. We had no more money. And Paul goes, "We didn't get to, we didn't get to record the cue. Or what's his name? Chases what's her name around the room, you know?" And I said, "Well, I don't know what to tell you." In those days, we couldn't even mock it up on a synthesizer. We just yeah, had, right. I don't know what you did if you left the music out or if no, you just, it looks good. That seems great it's, without it's, music. No, it has music. So maybe they repurpose something else. I, yeah, it's I guess so, because there is music in the scene and it works fine. Well, uh, there you go. You never know, right? But I remember so, how disappointed you know, Paul was that he didn't get his cue done. And I don't blame him, you know. It, it, it's, it, uh, I'm sure it would have been, it would have been great. But how, how, Let me ask you, how did, how did that work then? Did you collaborate uh, on the same song or did you trade off who was going to do which scenes or how did that work? Yeah, we went, we went through the, the, uh, the notes that John gave us <clears throat> uh -huh. and he had it broken down, you know, by scene. And then we, we kind of went and, and Paul, I think he did say, look, you'd be good, better at this than me. And so the kind of the big band jazzy stuff I get and the action stuff I did. And, and mm -hmm. he tended to do things that were a little more dialogue, you know, heavy, and it just needed a little little support. He did he did a lot of that stuff, mm -hmm. and um, but he was in San Diego. I was in LA. You know, it wasn't like we were meeting every day. And 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 I, I think I might have given him a theme that I wrote. Uh, uh, I, I'm trying to reach back, man, and and, and remember. But um, typically, that's what I would do. I can't imagine I would say, "Well, here's a theme for this character. You know, right. use it if you want. You know, if there's a place that you can use it." Uh, that's sometimes an effective thing uh, to do. But um, um, well, as I say, we were far pro from professional and we just met at the recording studio. I remember I was uh, I got a lot of my friends and we had to copy the parts out for the musicians. We didn't have money for a copyist. So we probably had six of us at my house two or three nights before the session. And we're all just copying music out, you know, um, and um we barely made it to the downbeat. You know, we, we were up all right. night. And little did I know that that was not atypical. Much no, of the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're up, you're up all night before a session. 
you know, to get these done. It's amazing how much stuff, you know, that you, you don't want the audience to know some things and how things get get done. Um, but lots of stuff is like, it, it looks like you spent many hours and you were brilliant to do this and you're, and you're looking at, no, it's dumb luck. <laughs> it just, it's true. It just came out that way. And but so, I'll take the credit. <laughs> I know. What a genius I was. Yeah. It reminds me that at that time I was, um, or shortly after that, I was working at Channel 8 in San Diego um, processing film and doing news film at night. And at the time we were in a six or eight story building downtown, what had one of those stairways where the studio was at the bottom and the editing was on the sixth or seventh floor. And we would come sometimes the, the uh, announcer would be queuing up the story to run and we'd run over to the staircase, drop the film down the middle, you know, six stories, somebody would catch it <laughs> and run it into the control room and, and it would get queued up literally three seconds before the guy was <laughs> said, and here's the newsreel footage. <laughs> it's as close as we get, as close, you know, before videotape, that was, that was, as, that was the nick of yeah. time. You had, to, you had to glue film together. You know, you just stick it but together. You know what? You know what? The, the, those analog days had uh -huh. an advantage because what what we noticed on the post production side was once video editing became a thing, then directors would be less and less uh, hesitant. Would be more hesitant to lock the picture because mm -hmm. they could always make a change. It's non destructive. It's not like where if you have to edit, you know, you're cutting. Right. You know. Cutting tape, right. Yeah. right? Whereas now with digital, you go undo. Let's try this. Undo. Exactly. So, so a lot of times, you know, we'll get a, a scene to score and then we have it all scored. And then, oh, we got a new edit here and we send it. And then it might not be off by much. It might be off by three seconds here and a second and a half there. But you just have to go through like a, and reverse engineer the music to make it fit. <laughs> Some sound, some buy, and only we know why the rapper's more important than the prize. Important decisions are made each day, much too important for the plain folk to make. They're always in a fight, depend on us to help make up their minds. I was going to say, uh, I, I was thinking that the logical uh, progression of that kind of thinking would be a film premieres. And the and like they do, you know, previews for a film now and get audience engaged to their reaction to the ending or to a certain character. But mm -hmm. now the film can be in release and they can go, oh, I, don't, I don't like that ending. Tweak it, send out a new copy to the theater, beam it over there. You know, yeah. it's not a physical thing. And then you can the film can keep evolving and changing as long as you really choose to want to do it. And um, or or where you have people that grew up on, on a, uh, a life of playing video games and determining mm -hmm. the outcome. Maybe you have a thing where the audience can say, well, I want this character to, to, you know, to prevail or I don't like that character. So, you know, somehow the audience would be able to, you know, tailor make the, the viewing experience to, you know, to what they prefer. Part mm -hmm. of, part of me is horrified by that idea right. as an artist who, you know, I, mm -hmm. I really want to envision it from A to B to Z and, this is how I see it. This is my interpretation. Sure. Uh, but I see a lot. Of, I see a lot of the industry going, uh, going that way, particularly with the influence of video gaming. You know. Well, yeah, it is. It's so easy to edit a digital now. There's just no comparison to film. What it was like doing film. 
Uh, well, you know, we, we did the, we did this movie, um, The Incredibles, right. and the director wanted it to be like a James Bond movie. Right. So he wanted us to record to analog tape, 24 inch, yeah. you know. And this, so we said, uh, well, Brad Bird? Is this Brad Bird? Brad Bird, yeah. 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 And so we said, okay. And so, but just we decided to run Pro Tools as a backup. Hmm. But recording to tape uh, is a whole different thing. And, and like if we want to punch in in the middle of it, like if there's a like a few bars that just need to be corrected as opposed to playing the whole thing again, we can just kind of drop in on those two bars and get those right. But mm-hmm. on tape, you hear the punch. You need to have some silence before you can punch in on the machine mm-hmm. and, and, and record you know, a new segment. And then you have to have a little bit of silence on the back end to get out. Right. So it's a lot more complicated to do that kind of thing. And we found ourselves, and this was in 2004, mm-hmm. um, we were doing that film and we were found, found ourselves feeling like we were back in the, you know, late eighties or something, you know, trying to, trying to deal with that old, older technology. Now there's no doubt that that analog stuff sounds really good. It's like a, mm-hmm. interacts with the human body in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the digital does. I, I, I definitely acknowledge that. Well, the, you, the soundtrack to The Incredibles is one of my favorites. I, every time I see it, it's just the the music really carries that that film, in my opinion. Uh, it just uh, it, it thank it, you. It well, was the and right, that was the right kind of music. Well, right. that was Brad, but that was Brad Bird who yeah. was not afraid to have the music be a personality mm-hmm. along with the other characters in the film. You know, he liked yeah. the fact. Whereas now, uh, a lot of times, uh, directors, uh, younger directors, feel that. Um, Music, if if you could hear it or perceive it, like if you hear melodies, that mm-hmm. it takes you out of the action. It takes you really? out of the story. Yeah. So they'd rather have music be, um, you know, kind of tone painting, you know, mm-hmm. and just kind of sound designy as opposed to like a John Williams kind of melody that you could right. hum and sing. It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a matter of opinion, I suppose. But um, why don't you um, talk a little bit about your band? Yeah. That happened. I, I was 40 years old when I decided to do it. And I, uh-huh. and I was on stage conducting an orchestra at Warner brothers. And, and I just, I was, I had an epiphany, you know, and I, I remember thinking, Gordo, is this it for you? Cause I would go to, you know, Warner brothers and I'd write what they would want me to write. You right. know? And then go to Disney and I'd write what they would want me to write. And I thought, is this my life? Am I, I mean, it's a noble profession. Mm-hmm. But am I ever, maybe I should plant my flag. And, and if I do, what is it? And I decided uh, that maybe I had more road behind me than ahead of me at mm-hmm. age 40. I wasn't sure, who knows, right? But so I went home that night and I, and I wrote a piece for Big Band. I went back to my 13-year-old self that fell in love with Count Basie Orchestra. Uh, and I wrote a piece like that. And I and uh, I just I pretty much every night from ten o'clock to about one in the morning, and it was hard because I had young kids and we were get, I had to get up at six to get them to school, and then a long day of work on Animaniacs, whatever. But I just started to write that music again, and then six months later, I called a lot of my friends and we went in the studio and recorded it. And I still didn't want to lead a band i didn't know that i had the energy to do it or that they would follow me you know i i really didn't know if they would um 
because all the friends I, you know, they make a lot of money playing in studios. Could I get them to do a jazz gig? Uh-huh. And pay them like 50 bucks or something, you know, would they even do that? Right. And, um, but then I lucked into a record deal with a company and um, got them, got a couple opportunities. So the first gig we ever did was at Cal State Northridge. Right. I don't know how we, uh, I think the, the the jazz band director there asked if I wanted to come play and open for their band or something. And then I got on stage and I remembered that feeling of on stage where you play, the music goes out to the audience, the audience mm-hmm. accepts it and then gives their enthusiasm back to you. And, you know, that interchange that doesn't happen in a recording studio. No, right. Totally different. And Right. And so I, I remember thinking, that's it. That's why I started <laughs> doing this. <laughs> so um, it's so a little by little, it, it started to become more of what I would spend my time with, you know, and um, it, you know what, it brought balance into my life. It really was um, uh, a one area yeah. where I could just write what I felt was appropriate. If, if I'm a composer for a, for a film or for a project like that, you know, I, I got to be a businessman, you know, and right. if I have a director saying it needs to be this, I, my, my job is to go, you're absolutely right. Let's do yes. that. There you go. <laughs> Even well, if I, even if it, if it offends me at my deepest level, I can't do no, it. You know, I have to be smart right. about it. I have to, I have to be a music for hire. Well, that's what you know. When I was a kid, you know, when you went to Disneyland, you could still see Count Basie and Vaughn Monroe and yeah, and yeah. Duke Ellington and all these bands played there for free once you paid the eight dollars to get in. And and I just and that's where I got to like that kind of music was my you know my mother introduced me to it and it's like hey it's Duke Ellington and and now so many people don't get to hear big band kind of music it's just not that uh, you know in I mean live they don't get to hear it yeah. live uh, with a band so I, I think it is uh, fantastic that the the big fat band is able to bring music that kind of music to so many people who might not have heard it before you know we we played a gig at the Carnation Plaza Gardens. We did it. We did play there twice. And I'm up on that stage and I was just freaking out because I went to Disneyland every night in the summer Mm -hmm. to hear Basie and Buddy Rich and, you know, Woody Herman and and those bands. And I was just like, oh my God, I sat right there on the floor to watch these bands night after night. And Mm -hmm. uh, and I told the audience, I said, you've got to give me a minute because I am um, just flipping out that I went from sitting there to standing up here. And, um, but I, I think you're so right that seeing is believing with this kind of music, because the difference between hearing music live and listening on your phone is, um, night and day, Absolutely. you know, you feel the air coming back at you, hits you in the chest. Yes. It's a, there's a physical feeling of, of live music that that's not the same. You're right. You can, you can feel the, the vibration that's not the same coming out of a speaker. Uh, exactly right. And, and, and you know, that, we're, that's what gives us hope because um, a lot of our demographic uh, for this band has always been high school kids, really? middle school, high school and, and college kids that are that that are playing this music. They're band geeks. That's who they are. But mm-hmm. they're playing this music, you know, and they're living this music. And um, um, I think the value of it is goes beyond that we need more jazz music, excuse me, jazz musicians, or we need more jazz fans. 
I think it goes deeper. I think that your understanding of music of content, like jazz and classical music and film music, some forms, leads to more empathy as a human being. And that's what we need more Mm -hmm. than anything in our world today is, you know, we need to have empathy and we need to have uh, ability to kind of see the gray area in life and, and look between the lines. And, and I think music helps give you that that perception. Um, And um, uh, that that's, that's, that's why I think that um, the best things that we do at the fat band is when we go and do our outreach and play concerts for, for young people. Kid, the first time I heard an orchestra was on a Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of kids will say, oh, I, I first heard this jazz on The Incredibles. Or maybe maybe in Seth MacFarlane's, you know, work where he, you know, emphasizes the Great American Songbook, you know, mm-hmm. and people like that. Johnny Carson was that kind of guy yeah. who, who kept a big band on The Tonight Show long after NBC wanted to uh, cancel it. And he's like, you want me? You got to take them too. Yeah, and so a big man was on network TV every night for how long was he on that show? Oh, wow, I mean, I saw Doc Severinsen's band once live. Yeah, yeah they were yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to make it up to Thousand Oaks. I don't know if I can, but I'm gonna try to make it up to that that show if I can. Oh uh, man, well we're uh, we're we're hoping to uh, get down to San Diego uh, and play. We we played there. Last year, uh, I think at San Diego Community College, is that it? But I have my radio show on KSDS, which is based yeah. in San Diego, and I do that every week. And and that's also been a, a rejuvenating thing for me because um, it reminds me of my college days when we would go to Tower Records every Friday and we'd buy, you know, 10 albums and go home and just, you know, <laughs> absorb them. And then as you get older, you just kind of, oh, I got my music, you know, I got music I like, or I'm too busy. Whereas now with this radio show, I, I proactively seek out, you know, the young guys and try mm-hmm. to find, you know, music that I haven't heard before. And it's really been uh, invigorating for me, for my own creative, uh, you know, uh, output to hear these, hear these new sounds and, and uh, you know, uh, rejuvenate kind of what my uh, intentions are. Nice. Nice. Hmm. Well, I appreciate you having you. On the show or on the podcast here, Gordon. Oh, I would just add before we. Well, the only up? thing I would say is that if we can do another one, uh-huh. uh, you, you got to get Clooney. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. For somehow he somehow he's never invited me once to to his uh, villa in Italy. I don't know what. Oh what man, well. <laughs> He probably lost your contact info. I'm yeah, sure that must be it. <laughs> well, he might be in the stage of his life where he might want to revisit, you know, the early days. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I see. Uh, I see a lot of big stars doing TV commercials. They must need some money. I mean, he does TV commercials. What am I saying? So I think, <laughs> I think he's been known to do a couple. Yeah. There are worse people in, the, in this town than George, that's for sure. But uh, that's that's true. I uh, people often ask me, you know, because if you search George Clooney and Killer Tomatoes, the photo that pops up in, in your Google search is the scene with 
uh, with George and, and me in the in the pizza place, and they'll ask me, you know, what was right. George like? And you know what? He is a nice guy. <laughs> he really was. <laughs> I really liked I liked uh, working with him. He, I learned a lot from him. Um, it does kind of piss you off when a guy like that. He's just so handsome. It's I like, know, isn't it? on, man. That, that's what I tell people. Is that uh, about my career? As I said, I, I should have taken the advice uh, George gave me, uh, which was be taller and more handsome. And I didn't do either one. That's all you. That's all you needed to do. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't listen. I really should have worked at that. <laughs> Acosta, well, thanks, thanks for having me on, man. I, I I just can't thank you enough. Also for taking a taking a flyer on Paul and I when we were young and um, and naive and. And uh, but it was an uh, 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 unforgettable experience for me, and I I don't run into very many people that don't bring it up. You know, well, that's great. As, as part of here. And you got and you got a Grammy nomination for orchestrating uh, the the theme song, which I John did. Brought. I know. How about that? Yeah, yeah. And that was that was nice. Uh, didn't win, but you know that's probably somebody paid off the Academy to vote for something. Exactly, else. payola, baby. <laughs> We actually have a we have a the Grammys are in uh, a few weeks from uh-huh. from what the time as we speak here, and uh, I've, I have three nominations for. Oh, uh, great! Yeah, so um, of course I, I, I you know what I got this publicist you know and I'm, I'm, I'm this interview came actually a good time but I'm I'm doing the, all, all these interviews and then she's got me on Friday I'm going to this gift suite hmm. and it's it's. She goes, it's like an Emmy Award, Emmy nominee gift suite for influencers and, and reality stars and athletes. I go, well, why am I going to it? Yeah, I go, I don't have, I don't have an Emmy nomination. She goes, no, I, I, I cleared it with, with the people that run it. They're friends of mine. So uh-huh. you go to this thing and they give you stuff. I go, yeah, they man. give you stuff? I go, yeah, it's like they just give you all kinds of stuff. That's what oh, I heard. I, I mean, I've not been invited to any of those either, so... Well, I'll let you know how it goes. I guess I'm going to go get some stuff. (laughs) Get some stuff, right? The only reason I'm going is like, get some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, uh, thank you uh, to uh, Gordon Goodwin for for being on the podcast this week. Uh, We'll be back with another guest um, in the future. I hope you will stay tuned and listen to the next Attack of the Killer Tomato podcast. This is Custer Dillon, your host. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Be sure to follow and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. To read the blog associated with this episode, visit olismedia.com. This episode was produced in studios located in San Diego, California and Tijuana, Baja, California. Creative director Ulises Bretog. Sound engineer Alan Glazepar. Ina Alvarez is co-producer. Serving as executive producer and co-founder is J.C. Polk. And Chad Pease is president and co-founder. Olus Media is an IVC media company. Olus Media.